Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Leap Takers podcast, the podcast for the curious where I'm interviewing daring European entrepreneurs, investors and shapers from various fields so that you can learn how they got started on their journey to discover the insights, tips, tricks and advice they gathered on their journey so far so that in the end you too can take the leap. My guest today is Holger Seim. He is the founder and CEO of Blinkist, which you might have heard about because I think they do quite a good job with their social media marketing and other channels. And yeah, so if you don't know Blinkist, it's a book summary app that lets you get the key insights from over 3,000 best-selling nonfiction books that cover topics like leadership, history, psychology, and more in roughly 15-minute summaries in text or audio format. So Blinkist has over 11 million users globally, and the book summarizing startup also has won a lot of positive reviews from the likes of Forbes, which stated, quote, this may be the greatest app you download in 2018, end of quote, and also got a really positive coverage in the New York Times. So in today's episode, I think we cover some really, really interesting topics for aspiring founders and everyone else that is kind of figuring out what to do in their career. Uh, specifically, we talk about how Holger and his co-founders came up with the idea for Blinkist, how they kind of exchanged ideas during university, but more about that later, and how they took the leap more concretely and started the company, how they got it off the ground. And then we also talk about advice, how to find the first employee or your co-founder, your technical co-founder. Then we cover the most important marketing channels for startups in today's world, some practical examples. And we also talk about the unique corporate culture of Blinkist and how to build a sustainable corporate culture. And before we get started, like always, I like to kick off with a small quote that I like and came across more recently. So here we go. What gets measured gets managed. This is a very short quote of Peter Drucker, who is also seen as the founder of modern management. And in my view, this quote is a very powerful one and not only applies to the world of startup, but life in general. And yeah, I really like to, to live by it. So without any further ado, please enjoy this episode with Holger Seim, the CEO of Blinkist. Hi, Holger. Welcome to the Leap Takers podcast. I'm very happy that we could make this work and I really appreciate you coming on, on the show. Uh, since as the CEO of Blinkist, I, you must be <laughs> very busy as well. So for the people that maybe are not that familiar yet with you or Blinkist, could you introduce yourself briefly and tell people what you're working on right now? Yeah, sure. Hey, thanks for having me, first of all. I'm, as you already said, uh, Holger, one of the founders and the CEO of Blinkist. And at Blinkist, we um, help people to fit more learning into their daily routines by offering key insights from nonfiction books that you can read or listen to in 15 minutes. When we started, we started Blinkist seven years ago. I knew my co-founders from university and we always wanted to start a business. And after university, when we started regular jobs, we realized that it got harder and harder to learn. In university, we would learn all the time because that was our job. But then um, while we joined jobs, we would still learn new stuff on the job, of course. But it was really um, hard to, to learn outside of the job, to keep up with the reading habit, read books, and just learn curious things beyond the job. And with that problem, and at back at the time, um, it was in 2011, smartphones and apps becoming um, more and more a thing, uh, with more and more people 
would have a smartphone and consume content on, on their smartphones, we realized that there's a great opportunity because we realized everyone shared the same problem that we had, not having enough time to, to read and learn. And everyone was consuming more and more time on smartphones. So we thought if we bring um, relevant knowledge and relevant content into a format that you can easily read or listen to on smartphones, we could, we could solve that problem. And that's where it all started. Yeah, and that was seven years ago already. Great. I would like to jump back again to the beginning and also your fascination with reading. And was the idea born for Blinkist really because you, you love to read or how you got the idea really and where the pain point was? So we, we knew um, we, when we met in university, we started our first business during university and we knew we always wanted to do that on a bigger scale after university. So we um, and by we, I mean my co-founders and I, we would constantly meet to um, think of ideas, to brainstorm ideas that could be the foundation for a great business. So we had a quite formal process for this um, and met maybe twice a year to think of new ideas. And naturally, oh, like we always um, circled around things that were interesting to us. So that were, um, we, we focused on problems that we ourselves had just we found it's easier to start something if you can really, if you have empathy for the problem and if you can relate to it. And since we are all uh, avid readers or lifelong learners, I would say, not everyone was an avid reader, but also people listen to podcasts or read magazines. There's a lot of sources um, to learn new things, but all of us had a, a thirst uh, for learning and a strong curiosity. So a lot of our ideas circled around learning in, in one or the other way. And one of my co-founders, Sebastian, he was a very avid reader. So he would read, I don't know, probably one nonfiction book per week. And in order to retain the information better, he took notes from the books he read. Eventually, he had an idea to share those notes via email with his friends um, so they could join him in reading the book um, and learn, learn something from the book even without having read it. And these notes were one of the, um, you know, they were there, but we didn't immediately pick them up and say, well, there's a business there. But then Sebastian and Niklas um, met once and had the idea of when they, when already apps have become a thing. It was 2011 in Germany. We had Wunderlist as one of the first really big app. So a lot of our brainstorming then circled around, we need an app. And Sebastian and Niklas had an idea to start an app called WaitMate, an app that gives you something to learn while you're waiting. So when you're waiting and it's that time, you usually don't use that in a meaningful way. Uh, this app would help you to learn something new. So there was this idea. And then when they both, um, or when Niklas visited me in Seattle and, and told me about the idea, I remembered Sebastian's uh, emails from um, two years ago where he took notes from nonfiction books and said, like, if it's just something to learn while you're waiting that may not be valuable enough and not specific enough for people to really get excited about it, but if we could make it key insights from nonfiction books that you can, you know, read in those waiting times, that would be valuable because everyone, people desire to read more books. And that's a more, much more specific desire than just to learn more. Um, and that's why, yeah, we, we started to focus on uh, or combine the weight made idea with the idea to, um, to make books easier accessible. And then eventually it, it clicked in our heads and we thought that's the idea we were waiting for. It's the right idea at the right time. It serves a universal problem and we can get excited enough about it to, 
to run that marathon of starting um, a company or starting and then and, and, and then leading a company. Um, yeah, so all stars aligned back then and, and we got started. Nice. And I think you said one very important point that you identified a problem that you yourself had as a group and then you knew exactly what you had to solve for. That's a very important point among founders that sometimes you shouldn't look for a problem somewhere out there. I think it's something that you yourself need to solve for yourself. It definitely makes things easier because it gives you um, a stronger purpose. I mean, there are a lot of successful founders who, whatever, started an e-commerce company for pet food and they probably don't have a pet on their own um, and they're also successful. And... So there's um, a lot of ways uh, to become successful. But for us, it was important that we start something that we really feel connected to and that gives us purpose. Did you finish university at this stage or where were you in your, let's say, career or in, in, your, in your life at this point? Yeah, we all were like one or two years out of university in, in normal jobs. Um, we wanted, we, we started to think about ideas already uh, during university, but by the time we were finished, we didn't have the idea that got us excited enough. So we went rather the classic route and uh, applied for a regular job, but luckily kept the habit of uh, meeting and brainstorming ideas and never let go until we, we, find the, uh, we found the idea. And did you, once you decided to really go for it and start the company, did you quit your job or was there a period where you were doing both like a side hustle that you built the company on the weekends and you worked your full-time job? I, I quit the job right away. I, I, I don't believe in side, I didn't believe back then in side hustles. Uh, I said like, that's a great idea. I was convinced that we can make it a success, but I was also convinced that we need to go all in and um, and really work on this 24-7 to make it a success. I didn't think that if we do this in a half, you know, in a stuck in the middle way where we still have jobs and then do this on the weekends and in the evenings, I didn't think that we could, could become successful with that. So um, we all quit our jobs and moved to Berlin, got started. That, that was my my belief. I think there's a lot of other examples of founders who who bootstrap their business and hence uh, need another job on the side to, to pay the bills. So again, there is a lot of, uh, it really depends on the idea, how much effort it takes to really bring it up to speed. It depends on the personality of the founder. I'm a person, I really, if I believe in something, I commit to it full time and I, I go all in and, and I'm willing to take a risk, but that's not for everyone and, and that's also fine. Yeah. And so did you also finance it yourself in the beginning or did you get outside capital? First month we funded it ourselves, but then got pretty early on um, um, a seed round from T-Ventures or Hoobraum, which was an incubator of Virtual Telecom. In hindsight, that was way too early and I wouldn't advise um, younger founders to to seek venture capital or institutional capital too soon. So I would always advise like, Try to bootstrap, try to use your savings or even ask your family whether they could give a credit or invest something um, so you can have more time to, to really get to a point where you know, okay, this is what we want to build and this, this is how we, can, um, how we can make it to the next uh, stage before you take on funding. Because when we took on funding, we didn't know a thing about starting our own company and we didn't have a clear plan okay, with this funding, this is what we need to do to make it to the, and this is what we need to reach to make it to the next round of funding. So we, we had money, we got money, and we started to spend money without thinking backwards, without thinking, where do we need to be in a year from now when we run out of money 
to get the next round of uh, funding and that made it quite hard to to get the to get that next round of funding and even pushed us close to bankruptcy uh, because we had a really hard time to to get a second seed round and yeah so that's why i would would advise to to bootstrap a little longer if it's possible if it's not possible then you know better take the money and get started than not getting started at all yeah i think i i see it similarly as well bootstrapping can definitely be an advantage if you can afford to do it uh, to switch to another point to your co-founders so you said you were all friends during studies did you put a lot of thought into putting together the the founding team or was it more clear because you were friends already and uh, a second question what aspects do you think are important when you're putting together a founding team like what characteristics and what makes a great founding team so we were naive like we didn't put any thought into it we just met uh, we happened to like each other and we happened to had a successful first uh, funding story in university founding story so we we just said yeah let's do that again without thinking about it in more detail and then and we were the three of us and then when we wanted to start we we were looking for a technical co-founder and then i asked in my network and then we met toby um, he was the roommate of my um, my wife's sister so we met him and we liked him and and we were the four of us and but also there we considered him we didn't do a, an in-depth assessment to see, uh, is it going to work out with Toby or not? It was the, the chemistry was right in our first meeting and our first calls. And then uh, we said, let's do this. So it was quite naive back then, but um, gladly it, it worked out well. Um, but we also had our moments where we uh, you know, really needed to, to work on our relationships to make it work. What I would advise founders who get started now and, and, and want to build their, their founding team, the found, team of founders more consciously to really make sure that you're clear about that you're clear about the roles that everyone has in the company. You're clear about uh, you, you should try to get a complementary skill set, uh, like try to get co-founders that are good at something that you're not good at. If all of you are good at the same thing, then uh, that um, makes it or puts you um, at danger to to always compete um, when it comes to domains and accountabilities but if you have complement complementary skill sets and are clear about roles then there's a natural um, distribution of of the work that needs to get done and you can do more within the highly motivated and engaged founding team and need to hire less externally which is uh, makes it more capital efficient um, especially in the early years and then last but not least, to to really openly and explicitly talk about values, like really go deep onto the value level and say what's important for all of you in that new company. How do you want to work together? Is it, Do you want to run this as a lifestyle business or do you want to work 24-7 until it works? Um, what's your longer-term plan? Are you committed for 10 years? Do you just want to do that for three years and then exit the company? Do you What values do you want to instill in, 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 in a growing company? So you need to have alignment on there because uh, I don't believe that founders can work um, opposed to their values for a long time. And if you have opposed like values um, in the founding team, then um, either one founder will suffer and uh, and leave at some point, or it will be um, a constant source of conflict. And then, and that brings me well. I said that's the last point, but now I uh, come to the last point. A constant source of conflict the term conflict brings me to you need a good conflict culture 
there will be conflicts within the founding team. You will have different um, different perspectives, different opinions, and uh, also different styles here and there. You need to be able to have constructive conflicts with your founders. You should uh, the conflict shouldn't be destructive because then that's energy draining and doesn't set you up for success. But you shouldn't also fall into a trap of artificial harmony where you don't go into the conflict, where you don't speak up and, and discuss things and then solve them, but rather shut up um, because you don't want to put a burden on the relationship. Like destructive conflict and artificial harmony both set you up for failure. You need to to have a, a relationship that that makes constructive conflict possible. Thank you for sharing that. I think this is very valuable because i fully agree with the the same visions and and values and also this whole conflict resolution and how you how you deal with it is very important i also i heard an interview with toby lutke the founder of shopify a couple of months ago and i found it very interesting because he is also a german founder but i think they founded the company in in yeah. canada and they also had a very good conflict resolution and very honest uh, communication culture. But I think it led sometimes to some tensions because also of the whole cultural differences between uh, the German-speaking culture and, and the American one. But this is very important that, that you really know how to deal with, with conflict well and not break the relationships yeah. and that everyone accepts open discussions. One more point I wanted to add before coming to my next question, also with the co-founders, I, I see this often that you have like, a, you know, a lot of people in one or two fields, like as a business or economic major, you don't know that many technical people. And I, I have a colleague right now who is also founding a startup in Berlin and he is looking for a CTO, but he only knows people with like more the business mm -hmm. side of things. So do you have any advice, maybe also that you now see more over time, how to find the people that are not really in your network right away for for positions in the company yeah. so i'd say the first thing is to talk about your idea like in the when we started blinkist and i see that with a lot of uh, young founders that just get started they don't talk about their idea because they are afraid that someone will steal it and um what i can say after seven years an idea is worth nothing it's all about execution of course you need to have an idea but it's not like that there are a lot of people running around with a lot of time just waiting for the idea they can steal usually everyone is busy and, and has their own idea that they pursue so start talking about your idea so other people can get excited about the idea and can consider whether they want to join the idea or whether they know someone they want to introduce to you to to join you on that mission and then go to to places where entrepreneurs or people that are interested in entrepreneurship uh, meet like there is a lot of meetups in Berlin in in co-working spaces host events startups um, host certain meetups so go to those events and connect with others talk about your idea and then eventually one thing will lead to the other we found Toby I started to share our idea with everyone in my network I told everyone hey we have this great idea we want to start a startup and we're looking for a technical co-founder do you know anyone you can introduce me to and eventually we got introduced to Toby. So yeah, get out there and talk about it. And if that all of that doesn't lead to success, then get a LinkedIn Pro account and start to cold email um, people. So if you're looking for a technical co-founder, look for senior developers in, in companies you admire and tell them, hey, you want to start a company, you're looking for a co-founder and CTO, whether they're interested to, um, to meet. And then eventually 
from 20 uh, messages you'll you'll send out one will bite and or two will bite and one will be a match yeah that's a good point and maybe something that most people don't even consider but i think that's a good good idea as well as an alternative we also talked about culture before and communication culture. I think I want to go there as a, as a next uh, kind of tangent because I heard or I read that Blinkist corporate culture is quite unique and that you place a lot of value and emphasis on, on developing it. So my first question is, why do you place so much value on it and how does Blinkist corporate culture look like? So when we started Blinkist seven years ago, we didn't consciously think about culture or organization we just got started to build a product and trying to market it and then after two years um, we realized that by not consciously thinking about it we fucked up big time because even if you don't consciously think about it culture will evolve anyway and a certain structure and a certain way how you do things will will just manifest itself and we saw that um, without knowing it without thinking about it we've had we had established a quite stiff hierarchy where the four co-founders were the leads of four departments and then the team members in those departments in those teams weren't really empowered to take their own decisions but would uh, always you know get by ask us uh, for for important decisions so we would become bottlenecks and we also realized that we would sometimes fight for resources uh, everyone wanted more employees in their team um, so we saw a lot of things that we didn't want to have. We, we, um, we left um, big corporates or consulting companies also because we didn't like the way um, they worked. And then unconsciously, we established a similar culture at Blinkist. So that's when we started to think about culture and organization more consciously and, and to do things differently. And then as we approached almost anything really approached us with a trial and error. We, we looked out, we did some research on new ways of organizing companies, on, on new work. We found holacracy, which we liked. Uh, we started to implement certain aspects of holacracy. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't. Um, so uh, again, after two years, we stepped away from holacracy again and started uh, the Blinkist operating system, which is our... Um, Kind of, which is a, um, a system that describes how we work together. The, the core of its system are values that um, we agreed upon. And, and these values, we didn't define them top down, but rather we looked at how do we work together? What are the values that, are, that we implicitly live by and work by already? And we unearthed those values to, to make them more explicit, to make it easier for new team members to get onboarded and to, to, to know how we work together. And to give everyone a strong North Star for taking decisions and working with each other. So the idea was if we have a, a strong set of core values, people can take a lot of decisions on their own without having to ask anyone because they can relate them the decision back to the value. Around those values, there are some guiding principles that go a little deeper and, and are a little more deeper and, and broader at the same time to, to help people to, to take decisions. And then there are certain, as, as a third layer, certain policies and processes that we need. We want to stay away from as many processes and policies as possible because that usually makes an organization very formal. And eventually, if you have a 50-page handbook for an organization with uh, 50 processes and policies, you are more focused on reading the manual than doing actual work. And we want to, to keep it lean. That's why we try 
with values and guiding principles try to govern most of the things, but then there are certain things that are just more efficiently governed with a, a clear process or policy. So that's sort of the core setup of, of our Blinkist operating system. Um, and also that is a work in progress. We sometimes kill processes, establish new ones, we rephrase guiding principles to create more clarity and so on. But this setup, this framing it as a Blinkist operating system with these three components has, has served us very well. Just that I, that I understand it right. So I think it's possible for an employee at Blinkist to make decisions pretty self, um, like they can make decisions by themselves, guided by the vision and the values of the company. Correct. Our first value is to champion self-empowerment. We want people to take the lead on their roles and um, be accountable for their personal goals. So we don't want, like everyone at Blinkist has domains where they can take decisions, period. So there's no one who needs to ask for permission all the time when they make a decision. And we've made that really explicit. Uh, we describe every role with a clear domain. So every role is aware of their decision-making power. In order to make that happen, um, we two other values or three other values that are really core to that self-empowerment, otherwise it wouldn't work, is default to transparency, communicate directly, and strive to learn and grow. If we want people to take their own decisions, uh, we need them to default to transparency. We, we need to, uh, and also we need to default to transparency. In order for decisions to be good, they need to be based on um, all the information that is available. So we need to be transparent about, about the business and everything. And also people need to be transparent about decisions they took. We need to, uh, all of us need to communicate directly. So if I don't agree with your decisions, I need to come to you and tell you and, and the other way around. Otherwise we don't help each other. There's no, mechanism that would um would correct uh, des decisions that were maybe wrong and then strive to learn and grow we want to hold everyone like i always love that spider-man um quote with great power comes great responsibility so if we give a lot of power uh, and empower our employees um, to take decisions and we're also holding them accountable to to grow and learn and to really make sure that their decisions get better and better and um, we embrace failure, so we, we definitely accept failure. We need, need to learn by trial and error, but we also hold people accountable to continuously grow. I, I agree with that. And also, yeah, if you give people like the opportunity to rise to, to expectations and that they can decide for themselves, that really empowers people. And as a follow-up point, how do you see this corporate culture evolving now that you're also growing massively as a company and i think you might be over 250 people soon if i if i'm informed right no, uh, 150 150 okay that's sorry that's already <laughs> big enough to, to make this yeah yeah. Complex, so. yeah do you see this as a challenge to keep this corporate culture in place and how do you tackle this it's definitely a challenge um to keep it in place or to, to make it like Keeping it in place, we always need to evolve our culture and our Blinkist operating system because what worked for 50 employees doesn't work for 150 anymore. So if say, like, take an example, default to transparency. Um, if you take that value, you could argue, okay, everyone needs to know everything. And that's maybe possible in an organization with 50 people, but certainly not, uh, no longer possible with an um, organization of 150 people if, everyone knows about everything then everyone spends their whole time on communicating things and reading uh, reading uh, things from others to stay in the loop and that's uh, so we need to we need to 
you know, whenever we reach those inflection points and make it to a next level in terms of headcount, we need to redefine what that means for our values. What does default transparency mean for an organization with 150 people? It definitely involves that people let go a little bit and trust others that they, uh, to, to make people aware, I can't know everything. I need to trust that a team at the other side of the office is doing a great job and they can't share every, every little decision and, and every little uh, progress or failure with me. I need to trust that they're doing it right and, and vice versa. Um, so, so yeah, that needs constant alignment on what those values mean for us and how we want to, how we want to energize them and then lift them day by day. Um, so I believe that the core of our values and guiding principle is timeless. That can, um, that doesn't need to change. I don't say it doesn't have to change as the world evolves. We may also reflect on certain values, but that is quite stable. But then we need to always think about what does that mean for us? Great. I would like to switch gears a little bit and ask you also about how you really approached growth and marketing in, in this regard. So I'm very curious how you, in the early stages, how you grew your company to the first thousand clients, let's say. How did you approach this? Yeah. So back then, I, I don't think we're a great example um, when it comes to reaching the first 1,000 subscribers. Uh, the first two years were really messy. Like it was our first startup. We needed to learn digital marketing, product development, uh, running a company, all the things were new to us. So we hustled. Uh, we tried to, um, since we had this, uh, this investment from Hoopraum, which was the um, a new incubator launched by Deutsche Telekom, and we were their first investment. So we used that story to piggyback a little bit on, uh, on their PR because they wanted to, they did a lot of PR around launching that new incubator and then used us as a you know as their pilot project so we we tried to get as much out of that partnership with Deutsche Telekom as possible to to get free traffic and free users and that worked quite well that helped us that served us quite well and then did, you know went to events tried to um to get pr opportunities try to get media to write about us try to um, establish relationships with apple and google so to get featured in the app store tried to post certain forums and groups, so hustled to get organic traffic. And we only started in 2014, so when we were two years old, that's when we started to dig into paid marketing. By then, like in, in the early years, it was really hard for me. I was responsible for marketing and, and, and growth, and still am, and um, it was quite an uphill battle for me to convince our, um, my co-founders and our uh, engineers and product people that we should invest precious engineering capacity to implement a tracking to make sure that we can attribute new um, users um, to where they came from to implement a revenue tracking to make sure we know who purchased what and where did the, that person come from. So these things seem obvious right now, but back then they weren't as obvious and the ecosystem wasn't that established for me to just, you know, get five or 10 best practices to convince everyone. So that took quite a while, but mid 2014, end of 2014, we were in a place where we could track everything, where we could attribute everything. And then we developed confidence to start spending euros in, um, into paid marketing. We started with Facebook mobile um, app install ads. And then we saw, well, we spent uh, 100 euros and we got back 200 euros or whatever. We saw that it's actually working, that we actually 
make money through marketing um and and then that confidence we built upon that confidence and started to invest more and more and then pretty quickly got a, a paid acquisition engine of growth to work and ever since been growing quite nicely through paid acquisition i mean it's especially now recently it's become a challenge uh, to to keep scaling through paid acquisition because marketing prices get uh, higher and higher and it gets tougher to scale but yeah that that served us really well in the last 5 years yeah i think you did a really good job at least with getting my attention because i i always remembered like your your ads that you were quite active um on on facebook yeah, or, or also yeah. instagram since you said it's getting more expensive now um are you also looking at different acquisition channels i also saw that you actually have your your own blinkist podcast <laughs> is that yeah. correct yeah correct like we we tapping into a lot of acquisition channels both paid and unpaid so we we are on facebook in the facebook ecosystem that involves instagram we do, we do a lot of paid content platforms like outbrand tabula ref content um we obviously use the google ecosystem we recently tapped into tv advertising podcast advertising influencer marketing um other paid social platforms like Twitter, uh, Quora, um, Pinterest. So all the all the channels out there, um, we're we're in there. We'll will soon um, start to explore them. And then next to those paid acquisition um, efforts, we established an own podcast to bring in organic leads. Um, we have a magazine to bring in leads via search engine optimization and so on. So right now our marketing mix is, is quite diverse and and growing. Yeah, but but we started with Facebook only, and I, that I would recommend to any any founder, at least with a consumer with a B two C model, to start with Facebook. You can target the the targeting is the best. It's it's really have a really advanced marketing solution. You can just plug and play. Basically, it, it takes you an hour to set it up, and you can um, can start to to test and learn. So, and that should you know bring you to definitely to your first one thousand customers in a B2C environment um, and, and, and way, way beyond. So I wouldn't advise people to bother with any other marketing um, channel in the first, in that, in that early, early stage. And that's for B2C, um, it's not for B2B. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And since we are talking about advice, um, before I head over to the, to the personal closing questions, do you have any resources or books specifically for new founders that you think are, are helpful I love, um, to I love, get started. Um, the hard thing about hard things from Ben Horowitz. Uh, that's great for founders because it's really, yeah, it tells you about the the good times and bad times of a CEO and founder. It's really good emotional support every now and then, and nice war stories. I think since as a founder, you also have to become a leader and a um, quite quite fast because you want you have to get people on board. Um, you have to lead them help them grow i love uh, the coaching habit and billion dollar coach um those books had um quite some actionable and inspiring advice uh how i can level up as a leader i think who the uh, a method of hiring is a really good book about recruiting there are other books uh, good books about recruiting i happen to have this in mind right now because recruiting is your most important job uh, um the, especially the early hires you make will determine your culture and they will hire other people. So you want to make sure that um, you hire great people in the beginning and that you're really conscious about hiring. Maybe to a little detour there, 
we we didn't have a recruiter for a long time. We I think we hired our first recruiter when we were three or four years old um, because we always thought, well, recruiting is something you can do as a side job and it's not that important. And that happened to be a big mistake. Recruiting uh, is really important. And a recruiter that really makes sure your funnel is filled with, with um, great applicants who has the time to proactively reach out to people who can facilitate a great process that gives the candidates a good experience can really make the difference um, between hiring good talent or hiring great talent. And that makes all the difference. So yeah, the, the, I would say yeah, the coaching habit, building dollar coach and who the A method for hiring um, for really actionable advice. And Ben Horowitz, the hard thing about hard things for more interesting, inspiring war stories and some emotional support uh, in time struggle. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. I also read uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things. And it definitely gives you a good insight into what you have to yeah. deal with sometimes when I mean, you go through the hard, time, hard times. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for, for these recommendations. I also look into the other ones. I haven't heard about them yet, but they sound like really interesting reads. I would like to head over now for the last five or 10 minutes into the personal questions. Since we talked about books already, is there any book you would recommend to the audience or myself uh, that you read in the last one or two years that you would recommend me to to take on my next longer plane rides to read? So nonfiction, I would say Sapiens. I mean, probably everyone knows that already, but that's definitely one of the that's been one of the most interesting books I've read recently. It just tells the the history of of mankind basically really really interesting for fiction i would say um i really enjoyed ready player one i read that last year it's a um, fictional story but it's not too fictional it could actually it's a dystopia that is that could happen in a not too distant future and i found that it's a really great story and I found it also really interesting because it still had enough ties to reality or to what's happening these days in the world so these would be two books that, that I could recommend. Didn't they make a movie out of Ready Player One? I think they, yeah, they did. But um, from what I heard, it's by far not as good as the book. So if you haven't watched the movie, don't watch it, but rather read the book right away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good to know. And yeah, Sapiens, I fully agree. It's such a great book. And it also came up before in, in earlier episodes of this podcast. I'm currently reading Dune, which is the most successful sci-fi book in uh, history. And it's a big, like, I also saw it being recommended a lot of podcasts from uh, West Coast founders. I must say I like it, but it, it, I like the, the first, it, it, it got uh, four volumes. And I like the first, first volume, and I think it gets a little weaker volume by volume, uh, book by book. But it's also a good read. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I like to read fantasy sometimes, or I used to read it, and uh, also sci-fi, but uh, I haven't read Dune yet, but it sounds interesting. Good, then... Another question I like to ask the guests on this podcast is their best investment in, in time or in, in money or energy, any type of worthwhile investment that had a good impact on, on your life or, or your project that you're working on. Me, I would say my best investment is an investment into relationships. It can be family, that can be friends, that can be yeah, new people I meet. I like the, the the source of joy and happiness for me in life is ultimately having deep relationships, and that starts with my wife, and now since uh, ten months with my son. Um, which is like thanks, um, which is like obviously a big time investment, but it gives so much back. Like I, I love being a dad. I love 
um, spending time with my son and can really deconnect from work. And it's, it's almost uh, like a mediation, uh, meditation when I go home and play with a with a little uh, with a little one. And yeah, spending time with my wife, really making sure that our relationship is, is strong and that uh, she doesn't take a backseat on, on on work or other priorities. Making time um, to meet with my old friends, but then also to to meet new people and, and and develop new friendships is really important for me. So that is yeah, invest time investment in relationships has has always paid off and has never been um, something I regretted. And. Yeah, as as a CEO, you are probably very busy, and then also, yeah, you said it's important to spend time with family and and friends. Is there also any type of uh, let's say unusual hobby or routine that you have to kind of get away to decompress and and uh, put your mind to something else that you'd like to do in your free time? There is nothing really unusual when you are, when you mentioned that question in the intro chat. I, I started to <laughs> think about it, but I. I realize I'm a quite boring person, I guess. There is nothing really unusual. I like I do usual stuff. I try to, and I, and I try. I'm not uh, managing well uh, all the time, but I try to fit enough sport into my weeks. Um, so I love running. Uh, running helps me get into a flow and, and, and decompress and disconnect from everything. I love tennis and squash, which is hard here in Berlin to, to get a to find good courts yeah and then i i love to meet friends i love to be in nature i love to travel so I, even in the first years of blinkist where things were, were really tough i always made two to three weeks in a row every year to travel and then see the world so these are things but they're quite usual i would say that's totally fine any favorite place that you would recommend or that you really like to go to oh, i love patagonia i we've been uh that was the last big trip before uh before our son was born and i always wanted to go and then we we finally went uh early last year and i i love that country the 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 landscape the sheer size of the views you have it's it's really nice it feels like a little bit being at the end of the world and uh having some solitude i i love that yeah also, I am a big fan of Mexico. I studied one year in Mexico, and I think this is the the country with the warmest people I've met. They are so nice, outgoing, um, and, and warm. It's amazing. So, mi casa es tu casa is a, a saying, a Mexican saying that really is true. They are really so open to foreigners. And yeah, so definitely a country worth visiting. Um, yeah, I've been to Mexico, I don't know, like it's almost 14 years ago, I think, with my parents. And I, yeah, I really enjoyed it, but uh, I should definitely go back at one point. Um, yeah, then second last question before we, we have to close. But do you have any words of advice for anyone at the end of or during their studies that might think about starting a company or that are, is not really sure where to go after they finish their studies do you have any advice to to yeah let's say someone 10 years younger that is ambitious and wants to do something if you already have a good idea that you're excited about and that you see has potential then just get started nothing can go wrong uh, like you're young and you're uh, you have you know all your professional career uh, um, in front of you you are still used to a quite cheap lifestyle as a student so there is no better time to start your business while you're in university or right after university for all these factors and yeah nothing can go wrong you can't fall deep if you fail if it doesn't work out 
can um, start a new idea or apply for a, a normal job and every company will attribute a lot of good stuff to you having been having tried it and having been a founder that's uh, you you learn so many things that are so precious for companies so you want it won't make it harder but rather much easier for you to find a great job within a company so yeah that's if you have an idea if you don't have an idea then and if but if you really want to start something make it a conscious effort to to really meet people brainstorm ideas sometimes they fall out of out of the blue but sometimes they don't so you need to make it a conscious effort and if you want to keep yourself busy in the meantime join a young company like again there a young company may fail they may run out of money and then they, uh, you may have to look for something new but you can learn so many things in these teams of 10 20 30 people you can be really a generalist you can um you know there are a lot of challenges that appear that no one knew they would appear and then you can dive into those and solve problems and and um really strengthen a really generalistic muscle that will set you up set you better up for starting your own company if you want to start your own company in uh um, in the future yeah don't especially here we in germany a lot of a lot of university um a lot of students that finish university still gravitate towards these secure jobs either that like banking and consulting or the big corporates that that pay well and that uh, look good in CVs. And I would encourage everyone, I think startup, the startup scene, uh, joining small companies is the new consulting or the new banking. It will give you a steep learning curve and it will, it will uh, allow you to dip your toes into different fields, which is really important in the beginning of your career to find out what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, where your strengths are. Um, and yeah, the only thing it doesn't do is to pay a high salary in the start, but you shouldn't optimize for a high salary in the start, but rather for a, finding a job, a career that you're passionate about. And then, um, for a high salary in the long term, if you, if you will, because I mean, uh, money is important to a certain extent, but don't optimize for it in the, in your twenties. That was a lot of advice. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I think it's very, very valuable advice. And I wish like someone would have told me that when I was like in my early 20s um, so thank you very much and if you have one more minute my last question that I like to ask the guests of the podcast because it's called Leap Takers Podcast I like to ask my guests what does courage mean to you? Courage means to to do something take a decision even though you know it can go wrong to really take a risk and, and put yourself out there um, even at the risk that you may fail. Great. Good closing words. Thank you very much, Holger. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, you and, and Blinkist? I will also make sure to link to, to all of that in the show notes as well. Yeah, so people can find me on LinkedIn and Blinkist is Blinkist.com. You can find us in the App Store. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, also on LinkedIn. So all the, the classic channels. A huge thank you again to you, Holger, for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. And then I also encourage the, the listeners, of course, to, to check out Blinkist. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a great, great app. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was really cool. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. You could do me a really big favor if you quickly head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and give the Leap Takers podcast a five-star rating. This would really help me to get more visible and that I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. So thank you very much. In addition, I'm 
also happy about any type of feedback that you might have or ideas for future guests and the questions you would like me to ask them. So if you have any ideas, just shoot me a message. You can find all my podcast episodes as well as my contact details on leaptakers.com or you can also just follow me on Twitter and Instagram where you should be able to find me under Remo Kibbutz. Next to the podcast, I also started uh, writing some blog posts on the Leaptakers website. So there I write about various topics, be it about investing, entrepreneurship, traveling, or just some new cool products that I tried. It's all there. So check it out if you like. Having said that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Stay curious and I hope to catch you next time. Bye-bye.